Well, a question for us as we start this morning, what's in a name? What's in a name? Uh, the question is a famous question asked by Juliet in Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. She asks, what's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. So Romeo would, were he not Romeo called, retain that dear perfection which he owes without that title. Romeo, doth thy name, and for that name which is no part of thee, take all myself. What's in a name? Quite a bit, it turns out. For Romeo and Juliet are in love, but Romeo is a Montague and Juliet is a Capulet, and their families are at odds with one another. There is no way they will be permitted to be together, and so Juliet argues in this scene that Romeo should abandon his family and his name, and be with her. Cease to be a Montague. If only it were that simple. What's in a name? A name identifies a person. Most of us uh, have names that have meanings. Many carry with them particular associations based on others throughout history and their actions who we have maybe known by those names. Say names like, like Hitler or Jezebel or some of those Ahab and, uh, and we immediately think of certain things, associations that we typically uh, would relate to that name that would keep us from calling maybe our children th- those names, right? <laughs> typically. does happen. But anyway, uh, in our text this morning, uh, we find ourselves in the middle of this incredible prayer that Jesus is praying to his Father. It is for us and for the disciples a glimpse into the intimate nature of this relationship. And there is so much to be found in it. I was talking with my dad uh, earlier uh, this week, and he was talking about how he had recently preached on this prayer and how much there is. And how he's been meditating on it uh, over and over, uh, just ruminating on all there is in it. But as Jesus is praying, he will several times refer to his name or the Father's name. And when John uses that word in this passage, and other places in the New Testament where John writes, uh, he's meaning more than an actual name or title. Uh, just a few examples for us to consider as we look at other passages where it's used. The first one, John 3.18, He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. We see here that name is is used in connection with the person and work of Christ, not simply believing a name. John 5, 43, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me, Jesus says. Here that name refers to the mission, the mandate, the authority that the Father has given to the Son to complete the work that he has called him to do. Revelation 3, 1, a place where this word name is, uh, is translated differently, Uh, To the church in Sardis, I know your works. You have the reputation or name of being alive, but you are dead. Here, more than just the name, obviously, the reputation is in view, and that's why it has been translated that way. Last week, Chris explained God's glory as the weightiness of the goodness of each of his attributes. And with that in mind, we we could define God's name as the summation of those attributes. It's His character, it's His plan and purpose, it's who He is, and He is entirely other. He is unique. 
And our finite minds and our, and our human tongues and our language and vocabulary struggle at times to be able to define him, to comprehend and explain him. Jesus, in our text this morning, is going to address him as Holy Father, a title that he uses and is found here alone in all of Scripture. A title that, that should be exclusive, but sadly has been diminished by others who, who use it for religious leaders like the Roman Catholic Pope or addressing uh, church fathers in Eastern Orthodoxy when it ought to be reserved for the Most High. For He Himself is set apart and there is no other like Him. To whom will you liken me? He boldly asks in Isaiah. Isaiah 40, To whom will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things, who brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name, by the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one is missing. Have you not known, have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary nor sleeps? Yes, his understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak. And to those who have no might, He increases strength. And again in Isaiah 46, He declares, Even to your old age I am He, and even to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. Even I will carry and will deliver you. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we should be alike? Remember this and show yourselves, men. Recall to mind, O you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I shall do all my pleasure. That's our God. That's the Holy Father. Would you open your copy of God's Word with me to our text in John chapter 17, 6 through 12. And if you would stand as you're able in honor of the reading of God's Word, I'm going to pray for us again real quick and then we will read together. So John chapter 17, verses 6 through 12. But let's pray. Oh God, you are a glorious God. Lord, we confess that so often in our minds, in our finite, broken minds, we fail to comprehend you and the fullness of your greatness. Lord, would we remember how great you are, but also how great your love is that you have loved us with, that even while we were sinners, you sent your Son to die for us. Now, Lord, as we look at your word, would you speak to us through your Holy Spirit? May we leave here having grown and learned and, and, and grown together as a body. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. John 17, 6-12. I have manifested your name to the world, men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you have given them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me I have given to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you. And they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf, 
I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. You may be seated. You may tell from the title that we'll be looking at kind of two major themes, given and guarded, that we find here. And sorry there's no outline because of holiday schedules and vacation times. They had to be in last week, and I was not ready with an outline by last week. So you got a title, and uh, there is an outline. Don't fear, it'll be uh, on the slides as we go. So you'll have to follow along to grab that. But there are several things running throughout this prayer, and one of those uh, the, kind of the key words is, is to give or, or given. Um, in fact, we'll find the word to give or ditto me in Greek. It's used 17 times throughout this prayer. You gave, you have given, he may give, you have given, you gave, you gave, you have given, you gave, I have given, you have given, you have given, you have given, I have given, you have given, I have given, you have given, you have given. That's, you'll have to read through to find them all. But that's, uh, that's the number of times it's used. And so we'll start there in verses 6 through 10. We'll be looking primarily first at uh, what has been given and to whom and by whom. And then in verses 12 through 6, or not 12 through 16, 11 through 12, we'll turn to what is guarded and by whom and for whom. The first thing we'll see is that what is given by the Son to the disciples. What is given by the Son to the disciples? Jesus begins in verse 6 by saying, I have manifested your name to the men you gave me out of the world. And manifest here means to reveal or to, to make clear. And Jesus has revealed the Father's name to the disciples. Jesus isn't saying that he told them the Father's secret hidden name, something they didn't know. It's not a Gnostic thing. He taught them something they didn't know because he taught them about the Father. Um, it's not something in that vein, though, where there was some special name of God in which they could pray. Um, actually, in his commentary on John, our own Paul Murray explains succinctly What Jesus means when he says he has manifested the name of the Father, Paul writes, Jesus is saying that he has made perfectly clear to the men the Father had given him everything they needed to know about the nature and character of his Father. Indeed, he has made the Father known to them and to us. Back at the beginning of the Gospel in John 1, 18, John writes, No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. A different word used there, but that concept that he has made him known. And in Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, we read, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. 
and upholds all things by the word of his power. Jesus has made his Father known. Jesus has also given the Father's words to the disciples. In verse 8 of our text, Jesus says, For the words which you gave me I have given to them. Jesus has made, and not just made clear everything they need to know about the nature and character of the Father, but his words as well. Everything that Jesus has done, every miracle performed, every lesson taught, every word spoken, has been from the Father and accomplished through the Spirit in order to fulfill the mission that the Father had given him to do. Everything. A couple of lessons for us before we move on. First is, to know the Father, you must know the Son. They're inseparable. One cannot say that they believe in the Father, but not the Son. That's impossible. In John 14, 6-7, Jesus declares, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me, but th- or no one comes to the Father, rather, but through me. If you had known me, you would have known the Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. In order to know the Father, we must know the Son. And all that we need to know about God the Father has been revealed to us through his Son. We must also remember this as we share the gospel with others as well. I find so often, um, even on mission trips or uh, when I'm sharing the gospel with people or trying to, um, and it is the case for many, that at a certain point in the conversation it's revealed that, that uh, the person says or we figure out that they, they believe in God. And oftentimes I think we see that as our out, right? Oh, okay, they believe in God already. I better stop talking about Jesus. We do that, though. We go, oh, I think he believes in God. My neighbor, I think he's a good person, right? Belief in God, however, is not sufficient for salvation. Or else even the demons who James reminds us in his letter, they also believe they would be saved, right? If it's just belief in God. Belief in God is not the gospel. We must declare the person and work of Jesus. Next, we have been given everything we need to live life for Him, or our lives for Him and His glory. Um, I don't know if you guys have noticed, we've noticed in our neighborhood an uptick in the number of Mormon missionaries coming around, the LDS missionaries uh, coming around, um, and, uh, and they've stopped by my house a number of times. The last time, a couple of weeks ago, and, uh, and I was driving home, and I saw them there talking to Aiden at the front door, and I thought to myself, Maybe I should just let him struggle with this and drive past. So I actually, I actually began to drive by, and then I thought, no, I saw that he, he looked like he'd probably want some reinforcements. So I, I backed into the driveway anyway and, uh, and relieved him. He passed the baton on to me. But as I was talking with this guy, these guys, they had a lot of questions. They heard we'd been on a mission to Italy, and so they were trying to equate the, the, what we were doing with what they were doing and, and stuff like that. But anyway... Um, one of the guys said to me, well, the thing I really like about the Book of Mormon, he goes, is, you know, I'd read the Bible before, but I never made any sense of it, and the Book of Mormon helped me make sense of the Bible. And I thought to myself, I don't think he's read the Book of Mormon. Because I've read the Book of Mormon, it doesn't make much sense of the Bible. But anyway, um, what I shared with him was this, though. Long before Joseph Smith claimed to have uh, had a vision, long before Joseph Smith ever penned the, the words of the Book of Mormon, the Apostle Peter wrote in 2 Peter 1, 3, that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Brothers and sisters, we do not need another book. 
don't need another revelation, uh, another testimony. We don't need even another conference or another study because we have been given everything we need to live our lives for Him and His glory. Moving on, we see what is given by the Father to the Son. And Jesus continues in verse 6 by saying the following, that the disciples were given to Him by the Father. Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the men you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me. In verse 7, he says that they have come to know everything you have given me is from you. And it isn't explicitly clear whether or not the disciples see themselves as being referred to in that everything. Surely they are, whether they see it that way or not. But anyway, in verses 9 and 10, Jesus actually begins to make his request of the, of the Father. And he asks this, he says, I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours and all things that are mine are yours and yours are mine. They are given by the Father to the Son. In John six thirty-seven through 39 Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he gives me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. The disciples are a gift from the Father to the Son, and so are we. If you believe or have believed in Jesus, then you are a gift from the Father to His Son. A couple of lessons for us. You are not your own, but belong to God. You are not your own, but belong to God. Catechisms have been useful throughout the history of the church to help uh, teach biblical truth. They're compiled in, in a way that uh, they have a question and an answer. And uh, the New City Catechism is uh, a more modern reworking of some of the old catechisms. And uh, we've used that as a family. And the first question asks this, what is our only hope in life and death? And I would hope that my children would have the response, but I'm not sure they would want to yell it out in, in, the, in the service. But what is our only hope in life and death? That we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and in death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. What is our only hope in life and death? That we belong to God. Another, another lesson for us. You are, not your own, you, sorry, you are not God's gift to the world, but His gift to His Son. As Christians, sometimes there can be a temptation for us uh, to view ourselves, I think, as God's gift to the world. Right? God called us. God wants us to be busy doing His work. But we are not. We are the, His gift to His Son. Because God's gift to the world is, is His Son. Right? John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son, who gave His only begotten Son, rather, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. God's gift given by the Son to those who believe is eternal life. Which, as we saw in last week's passage, is to know God the Father and His Son whom He sent. He has redeemed us and will present us one day to His Son as a gift, a radiant bride. 
The last thing we see in this section is found in the the last part of verse 10, what is given by the disciples to the Son. Here Jesus says, I have been glorified in them. Jesus has been glorified in his disciples. And if we go back to verses 7 and 8, we see Jesus' testimony to the Father of their faith. He says, Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me I have given to them. And they have received them and truly understood that I came forth from you and they believed that you sent me. The disciples have received and believed the words of Jesus that Jesus had given to them from the Father. And in so doing, they have glorified Jesus. And we know from what's about to happen that they don't maybe fully grasp everything, right? They're about to scatter before they gather again. But after Jesus is crucified and buried and raised from the dead and they have received the Holy Spirit, they begin to really understand all that they have been taught and witnessed while Jesus, while, while they were with Jesus. And they will give testimony to those things. In his first epistle, John writes in verses 1, 1 through 3, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life and the life was manifested and we have seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the father and was manifested to us what we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the father and with his son Jesus Christ. They may not have fully understood at this point in our story, but they have faithfully followed Jesus. Many others have have turned away. They've received his teaching. And Jesus has been glorified in them. And they will go on to make much of him as they proclaim everything that they have witnessed so that others may come to faith in him. And he will receive even greater glory. A quick question for us. Is Jesus glorified in you? Then make much of Jesus. Make much of Jesus. He should be always on our lips. Before we move on to verses 11 through 12, we see one more thing at the end of verse 6 in the guarded section. Uh, Sneaks in here just barely, but uh, what is guarded by the disciples? Jesus says... They have kept your word. And the word for keep here in verse 6, as well as keep and keeping in verses 11 and 12, it's the same same Greek word. It's the same Greek word used in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, where Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. That word observe in there, The word observe is the same word, and it means to keep or to guard or to protect or watch over, to take care of, to maintain. The truth that the disciples had come to know through Jesus, they had kept. Surely they had obeyed those things. They had observed them that Jesus had taught them, but they also guarded them. They also passed them on. And so a few lessons for us. The first is know the truth. We read about it earlier, but earlier in John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
And if we want to know the truth, we must first know Jesus. And then we must know what He teaches, His commands. And we find them, guess where? In God's Word. We must be people of the book, people of the Word. The second is guard the truth. We must hide God's Word in our hearts so that, yes, like David, we might not sin against God, but also so that we can defend the truth, that we can defend God's Word. We must be diligent so that we can recognize what is true and what is not true. We must not allow false teachings and ideologies that go contrary to God's Word to creep into the church as is happening all over today. We must be awake. We must be alert and attentive, not woke. Well, thirdly, we must proclaim the truth. We must proclaim the truth. Our mission statement here at Valley Bible Church reads this way. As we proclaim biblical truth, we cultivate relationships that are intimate with Christ, active in the church, and loving the community. You'll notice that the first part is a given. right? As we're doing this thing, which is proclaiming truth, then we do these other things. We, the pastors and elders of Valley Bible Church, are committed to proclaiming biblical truth. And we won't waver from that. We must preach the truth. We must pass it on to others. We must pass it on to the next generation. We must firmly stand for God's truth, God's word, regardless of the cost. Erwin Lutzer recently published a book entitled, We Will Not Be Silenced, this book here. If you haven't read it, uh, I would commend it to you. It's, it's, a, it's a pretty good read. He does a pretty good job of, uh, of accessibly um, going through a lot of the challenges the church is facing today and, and some, some good response. Um, and so consider reading that, uh, especially if you haven't been to any of our recent Nix conferences or Nix classes. Uh, it's good information for us to know. You need to know what's going on out there uh, in the world that might affect the church. Um, but anyway, uh, he in this book recounts uh, the story of, of Hugh, the reformer Hugh Latimer. And uh, I just wanted to read a bit of this to you. As he spoke, writes Lutzer, Latimer struggled within himself. Oh, context, sorry. Uh, Latimer had been invited to preach uh, before King Henry VIII. So, there we go. As he spoke, Latimer struggled within himself. Latimer, Latimer, do you remember that you are speaking before the high and mighty King Henry VIII? who has the power to command you to be sent to prison, and how he can have your head cut off if it please him. Will you not take care to say nothing that will offend royal ears? He paused for a moment, then continued, Latimer, Latimer, do you not remember that you are speaking before the King of kings and Lord of lords, before him at whose throne Henry VIII will stand before him to whom one day you also will have to give an account of yourself. Remember, Latimer, Latimer, be faithful to your master and declare all of God's word. And that is what Latimer did. He proclaimed God's word that day and from there on. And he was spared. He did not lose his life that day, but he was killed by King Henry VIII's daughter burned at the stake. 
Will you stand with us for the truth? Will you stand with us for the truth? We must proclaim it unabashedly. Next we see in verses uh, 11 and 12, actually getting down to what Jesus' actual request is. Um, we see this, what is guarded by the Father for the Son. And Jesus' request for the Father uh, is to keep or to guard his disciples. Later in the prayer, Jesus will expand this prayer to include all of those who believe in him in verse 20. Um, but for now, the disciples says this, let's reread 11 and 12. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you gave, have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Jesus says that he has been keeping or guarding the disciples while they've been with him, but now he is going away. And he is coming to the Father. He is about to be crucified before then raising, rising from the dead and then um, ascending to the Father. And now he is commending his disciples, his followers, back into the hands of his Father for care and for safekeeping. And my, how, do, how we need it, don't we? We need that safekeeping. Charles Haddon Spurgeon wrote this regarding these verses. I wasn't going to quote it, but I read it, and now I have to, have to quote it. because That's sometimes what happens with me. So anyway, greatly do we need protecting. We have been redeemed, but we must still be protected. We have been regenerated, but we must be protected. We are pure in heart and hands, but we must be protected. We are made alive with the divine life, but we must be protected. We have aspirations after the holiest things. Our love of Christ is intense, but we must be protected. The sunlight of heaven rests on our honored brow. We are near the gates of glory, but we must be protected. The same hand that bought us must protect us. And the same Father who has begotten us to a lively hope must get us to His eternal kingdom and glory. All glory be to Him who is able to protect us from stumbling. When God the Son, who does nothing outside the will of the Father, remember that. When He makes a request to the Father, it's as good as done. You can take that to the bank. Because the certainty of our being kept by the Father for the Son is the name of the Father. It's His nature. It's who He is. And He does not change. This is a certainty. Brothers and sisters, if you have believed in Jesus and His work on your behalf, then you are His and He will not lose you. Back in John 10, 27-29, Jesus said, My sheep hear My voice and I know them and they follow Me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. For no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. We are held safe and secure in the hands of our Father. That we are kept by the Father and the Son was also clearly understood by the disciples, by Jesus' followers. 
Jude, the brother of Jesus, addresses in his epistle, or he addresses his epistle this way, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 23-24, Paul writes, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And who does it? He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He will complete the work He has begun in us. Brothers and sisters, I hope that you too are gladdened by the fact that our our being kept does not rest on us. For if it did, we would surely all be lost. What great comfort there is in knowing that the Father will keep us until the day when He will present us as a gift, a radiant bride to His Son, and what a glorious day that will be. And so a lesson for us, He who called you will keep you. He who called you will keep you. You shall not be plucked from the hand of the Father. No, He will surely keep you until the day that He presents us or you to His Son as a gift. Jesus' request doesn't end there, though. He asked the Father to keep them in your name, that they may be one even as we are. And we are kept by the Father in order that we might be one. This isn't an individual keeping. I know we like, especially here in the West, to think of our our faith and our salvation as often being a very individualistic thing. And we have our personal relationship with Jesus, which is important. You need to have a personal relationship with Jesus. You need to believe in Him. But when we are saved, we are saved into a people, into a family, into a body, into one bride. And though this being kept as one is the Father's doing through His power, according to this passage, is the Father that keeps us. We are still to strive for unity, right? There are plenty of other passages that talk about us um, being unified. Their quest is that we would be one even as the Father and Son are. And that means looking after the interests of one another. It means preferring one another. It means loving each other even at great personal cost. That intimate, sweet communion and fellowship that the Father has with the Son ought to be what we have with one another. In his letter to the church in Ephesus, Paul exhorts them to strive for unity. In Ephesians 4, 1-6, he says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you have were called into one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Another lesson Then in the words of Paul, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. Be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. There is one last thing from our passage this morning uh, to consider as we begin to transition towards our time of communion. 
Our passage ends with a warning. Jesus says, Not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the Scripture would be fulfilled. One of those men who followed Jesus, one who was with him day in and day out, who along with the other disciples saw the miracles, saw the things that Jesus did, heard his teaching, heard his words, was not truly one of his disciples. Um, Son of perdition is a a Hebrew idiom used uh, for one who is destined to perish. And Jesus uses it here, referring to Judas, the betrayer. Why then was he even there in the first place? So that Scripture would be fulfilled. I know that's the simple answer that's here. Um, There is obviously a lot that could be unpacked in that statement. Unfortunately, we don't have the time to unpack it this morning. But I would encourage you to go back and listen um, to Pastor Chris's message on John 13, 18 through 30. It's entitled Nightfall. It's from March 7th of this year. And you can go back and listen to that. He addresses the passage of Judas' betrayal, and he does a great job. That would be a good starting point, at least. There's a lesson for us, though. That's this. You can't fake it till you make it. You can't fake it till you make it. There are some things in which you can fake it till you make it, right? Some jobs, maybe you can make that work. Um, but when it comes to your salvation, you can't. You can come to church every Sunday. You can give faithfully. You can volunteer. You can serve. You can even take communion with everyone else like we're about to do. Even though that's a declaration of faith, you can do that and still not believe in Jesus for your salvation. And if you have not, then you are not one of His. The bad news is that we are all guilty, right? We're all sinners. We all fall short of all that a holy God requires of us. The sentence for our crime is is death. That's eternal separation from God. And try as we might, there is nothing that we can do that can change that. We can never measure up to God's standard. The good news is that we never, or what we could never do, God did for us, right? In His perfect plan of redemption, He sent His Son to take on human flesh, to live a perfect, sinless, righteous life, and then to die in our place, taking our sin upon Him. He bore the wrath of God so that we would not have to So that we can, by faith in Him, have life, eternal life. His life exchanged for our life, His righteousness for our sin. He then rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, securing for us victory over sin and death. Do you believe this? As the worship team comes and we prepare our elements to partake of the Lord's Supper, um, I would invite you, if you have not believed in Jesus, to do so today. If you have questions, grab someone next to you on the way out, or find one of the, uh, the elders, someone that uh, here in the church, go to the Welcome Center, write it on a connection card. We would love to connect with you regarding your questions.